namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Continuing with these uh, teachings of Lumpo Sumato from Volume 3 of uh, the uh, anthology of his collected teachings called Direct Realization. And this particular collection of talks is from a book called The Way It Is. And these were all Dhamma teachings given during the winter retreat of 1988. So we had started on uh, this chapter called Stillness and Response. And I'll just continue from where I left off yesterday. When I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public, in roll call, would have me shaking from self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight to nine-year-old Chinese kids in North Borneo for a couple of years wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to, to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. I get highs when I felt I'd given a good talk and everyone said, you're really good, Sumato. You can, uh, you can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I would give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Lumpur Cha would always encourage me to remain aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk to be giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, that doesn't seem to up upset them very much. They seemed quite grateful for it, so that made it quite easy. One time in a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. Up until then, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain. Three hours. And he knew it. But with Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting there. That wasn't Ajahn Chah saying, okay, Samedo, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really suck it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy and uh, the not wanting to be bothered attitude, the wanting to please, to entertain, to win approval. All these have come up during these, these talks of the past 15 years, but in meditation one feels more and more a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that, through that insight, 
one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So first of all, and this was uh, a talk given in 1988, so John Paul had only been teaching for 15 years at that time. So uh, 1973 was when he would have started giving talks. So that in itself is something that's a bit of an eye-opener, that uh, it was only 15 years that he'd been teaching at that point. But uh, uh, this is a, a story that Lumpur Sumato would tell quite often, and uh, and it's a very good example of the, the kind of teaching method that Ajahn Chah would, would use, what you can call a situational Dhamma teaching. So putting you or inviting you to be in a situation where you have to uh, to meet these kind of challenges. Uh, when uh, when people would come to visit Wat Bapong or ask to come and, and stay there, then uh, one of the, the common ways that Lumpur Chah would greet people was um, he would say, what have you come here for? And they'd say, oh, I've come here to practice the Dhamma, or I've come here to, to be enlightened, or I've come here to be close to you, Lumpur. And then uh, often, regardless of the, the way they'd responded, he would say, uh, have you come here to die? And uh, usually that would put you on the spot, like, oh, no, no, I want to I want to live, I want to <laughs> use my life to be enlightened. But when he would uh, use that kind of an expression, mostly the, the point was, you're dying to your uh, your desires, your, your self-centered habits. And as I think it was St. Teresa of Avila put it, um, that uh, part of the, the point of spiritual practice is that you die before you die so that when you die, you don't die. You can follow that. So you let go of your self-centered habits while you're still alive. You die before you die. You, so you, you let the ego... Um, they surrender its uh, its self uh, self centered perspective before you physically die, so that when you physically die, then you don't die with it. Your, your heart is uh, not identified with those worldly conditions. So Lumpur Chai used to use uh, the, the words in exactly the same way. It's even more convenient in the Thai language. The word to meaning to die is die. So it's it's even the same word as we have in English, and uh, that. Uh, uh, scenario that he has here with Lumpur Sumedha being up on, on the Dhamma seat to uh, to be there for three hours, then it's a, a very uh, per, a very sort of tailor-made, perfect opportunity to watch that kind of, of ego death, of um, wanting to please people, wanting to be interesting, wanting to have fresh, uh, insightful things to say, and then just running out of words. You have to end up telling the same stories or talking about your memories of being in the American military or, <laughs> or growing up in, in, uh, in Seattle or uh, whatever it might have been. I, I can't imagine exactly what he, he drew upon. But I've been in that same sort of situation myself. And, and it is very definitely an ego death situation. You know, the, um, the very first uh, rains retreat I spent as a monk in Thailand uh, was at a uh, I, I was I, I received Upasampada, became a bhikkhu in April of 1979, and then I, I was invited to go and spend the rains retreat up a, at a little branch monastery in Royette province. Uh, Royette means 101, so the city of Royette is 101 miles from Ubon, um, and it was a little branch monastery uh, run by Ajahn Ruangrit, who was one of Ajahn Chah's um, uh, uh, close disciples, and um, about almost exactly the same reigns as Lumpur Sumato. They used to sit beside each other when they were young monks at, at Wat Bapong. So Ajahn Ruang was the abbot there. I was the only English speaker. 
in the in the monastery and the the village school teacher could speak a few words of english but otherwise i was if i was going to talk at all i had to learn how to speak thai so anyway um I, it was uh, my first reigns as a, as a bhikkhu in this little branch monastery and um at the uh, at the end of the reigns um then uh, uh Rungrit had said oh the um the abbot of the monastery in the local town in pontong uh, uh he's uh, invited us to come to his katina ceremony which is a, a couple of weeks after the ending of the the, the vasa of the ending of the reigns and uh, uh he'd like you to give a talk at the the katina yeah i was the only for probably the only foreigner in royet province <laughs> at that point um and so uh i have a, a a mind that can think a lot so i even though uh, as uh, it, it'll be pointed out later on in this in this talk that uh, lumpocha strongly encouraged no no preparation before you get up on the dhamma seat I, i couldn't stop my mind from preparing and so i had an extremely limited vocabulary uh, in thai and and uh anyway so in those weeks running up to this uh, the end of the vasa and when i had to give this talk in the local town my mind was racing away trying to come up with a clever interesting as elon porsomedo put it you know having scintillating things to say you know clever and inspiring and and illuminating and uh, insightful and uh, it was just this uh, endless uh, chattering away in my mind trying to, to to get all these these clever things to say about like sweeping the leaves from the paths in the forest monastery was like sweeping the mind of its attachments and its busyness <laughs> uh anyway uh just as uh lumpo somedo is saying here that uh, he had to deal with sitting up on the dhamma seat while people start chatting with each other or getting up and walking out or lying down to sleep and, and i wasn't going for three hours but um uh you know i could just put a few words together and then my pronunciation was so bad my accent was so awful people couldn't follow what i was saying and i i i kind of forgot where i was and uh, it was definitely a dying uh, <laughs> probably dying a thousand deaths up there on the dhamma seat and um after a, a certain amount of time probably 20 minutes or half an hour then um, of me trying to come up with these profound insightful uh, analogies and and the, uh, and teachings um one of the these uh, exactly the same kind of polite uh, el uh, elder ladies sitting in the front row chewing the beetle nut just kind of interrupted and said so where'd you come from then you know uh, what what do you think of the food and uh, yeah uh, what's the, what's the weather like in your country and i felt this great relief because <laughs> like those kind of things i could say like uh, yeah the food is delicious you know ahan sap ili in the local dialect or or the angret von dogmark you know in england it rains a lot yeah so so i was i feel great even today you know more than 40 years later i feel gratitude to those um, elder uh, upasikas uh, of the the pontong monastery who saved my life as it were <laughs> but uh, and then uh, but it was just like that you know people lying down to sleep uh, chatting with each other getting up and walking out and it's exactly what you don't want in terms of a performance or a a thing that you're trying to get right or to be approved of or we would usually think in our terms of things going well quote unquote it was exactly the opposite and then also uh, as probably many of you know that uh, 
particularly in Northeast Thailand, people are very, very straightforward. That they can make comments that um, that we in the West would tend to, to find sort of offensive or a bit sort of emotionally blunt. Like they might say to me, oh, "Wow, you're, you've got the biggest nose I've ever seen," you know, or, or that, uh, or they go up to Ajahn Sumedho and kind of stroke his skin and say, "Your skin's really ugly, isn't it?" <laughs> yeah. And not being insulting, they're just sort of making an observation. It's like that's an impression, or or that wow, you're really fat. Are your brothers and sisters fat like you? And and not being offensive or, or rude, or just making polite conversation, just being kind of straightforward. And so uh, as we were sitting in the pickup truck driving back to our little branch monastery, leaving Pontong, then the Ajahn Ruangrit said to me, "Well, you know, it can never get worse than that." <laughs> and again, he was being quite friendly and supportive. It's like, well, that, 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 just rest assured, that's as bad as it ever gets. So, so I thought, ah. and again, I was kind of strangely uh, comforted. Right? Okay, that's a, that's a baseline to work from. And, uh, but it, it's exactly that kind of learning to you know, die before you die so that when you die, you don't die. To, and it, they have exactly the same expression in Thai, Dai Gon Dai, which means die before you die, so that you. You learn to fail. You learn to lose it. You learn to uh, for things to break, for, for things to not work, to be uh, to be as a um, falling apart, and then to know that, to feel that, to be aware of this is exactly what I didn't want to happen. Okay, here it is. It's it's like this, and to realize that which knows that feeling of failure or loss or brokenness isn't broken. It it it's not lost anything, and that's that quality of awareness that quality of knowing is the is the genuine refuge so any questions thoughts reflections anybody want to give a dhamma talk <laughs> okay we'll carry on Whenever Ajahn Chah used to give a talk, he'd sit and close his eyes, and then he'd start talking. And what would come out would be appropriate to the time and place. He said never to prepare a talk. He didn't care if they were interesting or not, but just to let them come. And when, sorry, and when there's non-existence, no self anymore, and when we give a talk, there are none of the problems that we build out of, what do people think of me? What do people say about me? Or defiance, well, they can think what they want, I don't care. But you do care, really, otherwise you wouldn't have to say that, would you? You can follow that last piece. He said, I don't care. He said, well, if you, if you really didn't care, you wouldn't be saying that. <laughs> so uh, another story that Lumpur Sumedha would often tell, and that is, I feel is very, very good advice, was that the, the first time that uh, Lumpur Chah asked him to give a talk at Wat Bapong. I think he'd been there a couple of years by that time, and he was aware that uh, the young Bhikkhu Sumato could, could speak Thai fairly fluently uh, by that time. And uh, he said, uh, you know, okay, uh, Sumato, on the next observance day, next one pra, yeah, I want you to, to give a talk to the, to the, uh, the people. And so, uh, again, well, <laughs> similarly in his account to myself, the mind starts to, to uh, formulate things to say. And... He'd been reading a book about the, the six realms of existence, the, the, uh, the, the human realm, the animal realm, the ghost realm, the uh, hell realms, uh, the, you know, the deva realms, the asura, 
the realm of the jealous gods, and how those different uh, divisions of the six realms, they relate uh, essentially to psychological states. So say that the deva realms are like wholesome pleasure, the hell realms are like being angry, the animal realms being uh, driven by uh, des uh, desire and fear and, uh, and uh, instinctual reaction and so forth. And so uh, he had put, uh, put all this together in his mind and then gave a, a, a talk on, the, on that particular evening. And uh, he felt, in contrast to my performance in Pontong, <laughs> that uh, it, it came together pretty well. His, his language skills were, were pretty good. And then after the talk, then uh, his fellow monks did indeed come up to him and say, oh, oh you're, you're really good, Samedo. You really give good Dhamma. You know, well done. You know, good, good talk. And he was quite, oh, that's, uh, that's good. You know, I, I, I held it together and I, I did something that was really worthwhile. So he was feeling quite, uh, say, um, uh, happy with, with how it had taken shape and also getting that positive approval, as I recollect the story um, as he told it. But then uh, a couple of days later, when uh, he was w with Lumpo Cha, and, uh, and I guess it was just a sort of quiet moment between the, the two of them, and it was the first time they'd had a conversation since that Dhamma talk, and uh, Lumpo Cha just sort of uh, turned to him and said, Samedo, don't ever do that again. That was it. So he knew exactly that the, this, the, the talk that he, he was uh, speaking as coming from planning and memory and, and recitation and coming from a, a set of concepts that he, he put together. And yeah, Ajahn Chah was, an ex, it was a, like a, a genius at reading people, like reading where people were coming from. He, he, he would often say he wasn't psychic, but you could know where a person was at just by looking at the way that they, they walk across the, 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 uh, the monastery, uh, uh, the, the, the open space walking into the sala, or the, the way they come into the space under his kuti and, and, and pay respects. He said, you don't have to be psychic. You can just watch the way a person walks. You can see where do they sit. You can see how they hold their body, how they look at other people, how, how they are. And so he was a great reader of body language and where people were coming from, and was uh, and could tell that was uh, what, what had, uh, had been behind the the dhamma talk that uh, the young bhikkhu Sumato had given on that, that that occasion, and so his comment was just don't ever do that again, which I think was a and and Lumpur Sumato has told that story so many times it really sank in and he sort of really taken that to heart and and he's used that principle even on big occasions i remember a few years ago i think it was uh, something like he was invited to give a talk at the either at the un in geneva or at, the, at a um like an international convention uh, a big a big conference in in thailand with all kinds of of uh, senior uh, monastics from all over the world and and high-ranking sort of officials and dignitaries of one sort or another and he just made us a, a determination in his mind just to, to not prepare anything at all, just to, to speak uh, from the heart. And it was a, one of those days, conferences or big meetings, where there was dozens of different talks that had been given during the day. And uh, I remember him saying how, yeah, as he's speaking, he's also kind of uh, su you know, surprised at where it, you know, how words are taking shape or where it's coming from. and and feeling the whole uh, theme of his of his talk, what he was saying, really coming from a place of, of emptiness, 
within himself and then also taking note of the fact that a lot of people came up to him and said that was the best thing that was said all day you know can you can you give me your notes well no, no, i don't know if they said that but <laughs> can you give me a copy of your talk and uh, that that's uh, my elaboration on it but um I, I do recollect how he saw you know there's several thousand people here and it's sort of a big occasion quote unquote but yet seeing well, it's even more important than usual <laughs> to come from that that place of, uh, as he puts it, uh, non-existence, the place of not-self, and to trust that. So uh, that takes a lot of faith, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and it's exactly the kind of situation where um, we're likely, from sort of self-centered reactions, to be experiencing a great deal of, of fear. So it's meeting that that fear, or that, as he puts it, put it in the first part of the talk that self-consciousness that to, to meet that to know that and say okay i'm aware of this <laughs> nervous self-conscious fearful feeling duly noted to to notice that to receive that to feel that but not to, to let the mind be dominated by that and instead to instead to come from that place of of faith and trust confidence and and again um when uh, when somebody has asked uh, I was with Lumpur Sumato one time and somebody uh, asked him how he could just sort of, uh, uh, and I think this was at the uh, Buddhist Society Summer School. Uh, I was along with him as a attendant uh, uh, one year back in the early 80s and he sort of get up and speak for an hour you know, with, as he can, you know, great, great eloquence and, and uh, depth and you know, with great uh, you know, skillfulness and wisdom with a lot of very helpful examples. And, and somebody uh, said, you know, yeah, Ajahn Sumedha, it's extraordinary how, how sort of comprehensive and, and helpful and inspiring your Dhamma talks are. Um, you know, how, do you, how do you manage to, to prepare all that? Or, or, or in what way do you sort of, uh, do, you, do you have to do a lot of, uh, of sort of gathering your thoughts and organizing things before you, you start speaking? And he said, and he just said, I know my subject. <laughs> that was it. His only comment was that, you know, I, I know my subject, and so it's all there. I didn't have to sort of line up all the words and phrases and which anecdote to put where uh, in order to um, uh, to really say, communicate. And uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting how how it works um, in that respect. And uh, uh, I, I've been in a number of situations when I was living living in the states, in particular. I was often uh, along uh, at events when other people were teaching retreats or different Dhamma teachers were, were giving talks. And um, uh, when uh, uh, I've been in situations, I'm not going to mention any names, but where someone who's a very, very well-known, highly respected, eminent Dhamma teacher uh, would get up and give a talk and it's very well ordered, lots of uh, helpful information, all of the right details are there according to the subject. You know, the, a suitable amount of anecdotes uh, to, to illustrate the the uh, the theme, and all put together in a in a very kind of you know, very so sort of balanced, orderly, and uh, and kind of um, as a impressive way. And the whole thing is completely dead. It's like the, there's a, there's no there was no life in it at all. It was, and I remember sitting there several times, different people like this is extraordinary. It's all perfectly put together, but this is totally lifeless. 
and that when uh, someone is really speaking from a place of of that kind of uh, selfless uh, you know, attunement to to the moment, then even if uh, they are kind of losing their thread or they start a story and get <laughs> get off on a sidetrack and just stay on the sidetrack and never get back to the story, uh, still you can find yourself just sort of paying uh, you know, ardent attention. There's a sense of loveliness in it and a, and a kind of gladness like to 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 listen and to be there because there, there's that sense of, of connection and uh again i'm not trying i don't want to be so insulting or, or rude to people i know people are very sincere and they can make a lot of effort to prepare their talks or to to do their research and get everything right i'm not uh, trying to be dismissive of that i think there's a lot of sincerity and, and effort goes into it but it's it's really striking to me how it it can have that kind of lifeless quality, or it just doesn't really reach the heart, and uh, and so that it's a uh, the in a way what makes a dumber talk a dumber talk, <laughs> not just it's not just the sort of dumbic content in uh, of the words or the themes, but it's the dhamma of the present moment. It's the pachupana uh, dhamma. It's that living reality of the present. That that's the kind of that's what makes it a dhamma teaching. It's a uh, and a um, the word desana, like the like this, the uh, the Sanskrit word darshan. It's a demonstration. So it's like a, a really a dhamma talk should be an embodiment of dhamma, not just having the dhamma words being its fabric, but it's it's a demonstration of dhamma. It's an embodiment of dhamma. It's an actualization of dhamma, and that sense of aliveness. And uh, attunement is really a crucial part of it, and so uh, uh, that uh, I really try to take that to heart. I, I'm uh, I've got the kind of mind that likes to make lists <laughs> and kind of arrange things and uh, order things, and so that uh, I I find it difficult to restrain that organizing and preparing urge in my own mind. That's just sort of how my brain works. But I really do feel that it's so worthwhile. It's a really important principle to, to take to heart, and uh, because if if we take refuge in that sense of, of preparing things or just making sure you've got your lists, you, you've remembered all eight items on the list, or you know, all ten parameters, or all seven factors of enlightenment, or you can name all the aspects of, of right effort, or all the factors of stream entry, and so on. But that that's not the the most important thing. Um, but rather that sense of connection with the people that, that are there. And like, uh, as he said, Yilumpo Chao would close his eyes and, and often just sort of, or open his eyes, look around the room, then close his eyes, get out some, some, some tiger balm and sort of rub it on his neck, or sometimes take his nail clippers out and you know, clip his fingernails and just sort of wait to get in the mood. And uh, I remember when he was in, in the States, they talked about that when he was giving some talks at, at, uh, at IMS, yeah, they were sort of seeing all this kind of routine. Lumpur Chao si sitting up on the, the seat preparing to give a Dhamma talk and everyone's sitting there waiting, a hundred people in the meditation hall at IMS and he's clipping his fingernails and sort of getting some fragrant oil on his nostrils and just sort of rubbing his head. And like, what's he going to do next, you know? <laughs> it's like just uh, not really uh, aware that this is just sort of picking up the mood, getting getting in tune with who's there, what's happening, and getting a feel for what's going to be useful to 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 talk about. Because 
that sense of attunement at who's here, what's what's meaningful, what, what's uh, what's in the air, <clears throat> that's crucial. Otherwise, what you end up doing is if you've got if you've got your script, you end up talking at people. There's the 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 the, the people uh, are sort of them. It's it's like this body that you you sort of you're doing you're doing your duty to deliver in relationship to this sort of uh, this other. But uh, a Dhamma talk is in a way not just letting go of self, it's also letting go of other, so that you're, you're not to, uh, in a way just relating to this group that you've got to please as, a, as an object. You're not just talking at people, but you're with, there's, a, there's a withness. If such, I don't even think such a word officially exists, but there's a, a relatedness, a togetherness. And so in a way it's the moment speaking. So one of the reasons why we say Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami is like I pay respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So ideally the person is getting out of the way. <laughs> That's the there this the Buddha Dhamma Sangha uh the that is that is the say the uh the the refuge is being clarified at that moment. So then it's really the, the Dhamma speaking and the the more the person can get out the way, then the more the Dhamma is is manifest. So it has a, a very, very different quality. And that, uh, that I remember another another teaching occasion, very sort of performance focused. Um, uh, so back in, it was the spring of 1986. And um, uh, Lumpur Sumay, I, I was... I'd been a monk about six, six, just coming up for seven years, and uh, Lumpur Samedo had asked me to to teach a ten-day retreat in Switzerland. So he used to go to Switzerland and teach a, a ten-day retreat there every year, and he wanted to step down from doing that. So he asked if I would take that on, and then he said to me, "Well, you haven't been on a ten-day retreat for a few years, so why don't you sit on this ten-day retreat with me this springtime, and then you can kind of refresh your your memory of how these retreats are done." that'll get you prepped for when you go off to, to Switzerland in April. So I thought, oh, great. So this was the end of March. The winter retreat in those years was just two months. It was just January and February. So uh, there I was. It was the, the, the latter part of, of, uh, of March, early, early April of um, 19, uh, 1986. And, uh, and it was absolutely great. So I was just sitting, I was the attendant just sitting beside Lumpur Samedo, just joining in with the chanting and uh, hearing his Dhamma teachings, his morning reflections, chatting with him in the Sangha room and listening to his Dhamma teachings in the evening. It was great. So I was essentially sitting there sunbathing for about five days. Then on about day six, five or six, then uh, the, uh, the, the morning sitting after breakfast and then uh, he didn't show up to the shrine room. I thought, oh, it's unusual, Lumpur hasn't come. And then the walking meditation, then the, the second sitting of that mid-morning period, then Lumpur didn't come along again either. And I thought, oh, it's kind of odd. So uh, anyway, that, that was over, and it was time to prepare for the meal. So sitting in the, in the Sangha room at the end of the retreat center kitchen, uh, Lumpur uh, then appeared in the doorway and said, well, venerable, I'm off to California. I'm leaving the retreat in your hands. Oh, so uh, he had a, his mother had had a medical emergency. He just got an, sort of a, an alarm call from his sister in California. So please, can you come? Your mum's had a a, a, a collapse. You know, 
please get on a plane as quickly as you can and, and get here as fast as possible. And so there we go, halfway through the retreat. Everyone has been listening to to, to uh, Lumpur Tomato in, in glorious full flight for, for four or five days. And suddenly, boom, it's in my hands. And uh, so I was uh, once again swamped by this. I've got to please these people. I've got to follow. I've got to step into Ajahn Tomato's shoes. And he's got really big shoes. And so that uh, I, I remember that, uh, that first evening, I was walking around the, the field and trying trying not to prepare <laughs> Fail, failing at trying not to prepare and uh and then i, I was i done a, a couple of laps of the of the field and i was just sort of coming around uh to back to the sort of the the retreat center you know, to completing another lap and suddenly it hit me i was thinking about i've got to please them what am i going to say to them I, I i i want them to like me i want them to be inspired and i thought there was this me and them, like I'd made the whole group of retreatants into this object that, that's out there that has to be pleased or has to be a source of, of approval. And it really just suddenly hit me like, what a, that's ridiculous, you know, that, that I've got to please them and that the, the mind had created this very solid self-other uh, division. So then seeing that, feeling that, uh, then decided to change the attitudes and rather than thinking of those people that you know, you've got to please just think of it instead as instead as uh, spending a week in the country with some friends and then if there's a few things to say that help things along then you can say them but they might help things along or they might not but basically you're just here spending a week in the country with some friends and you can meditate together and and uh, and isn't that delightful and then there was again this, oh, <laughs> how different that is, and uh, yeah, obviously, well, not obviously, but the, the, there were many moments following that of the urge to try and please or get it right or to be seeking approval. But that uh, that kind of reminder of rather than me having to please you and having a that sort of um, disconnect that comes with investing in egotism and self-view rather you know here we are this we we are this this group gathered together there is this the presence of this reality of this collection of beings in this place and here we are and then just letting whatever uh, communication or, or connection or things that might be valuable to arise out of that and then it was quite enjoyable <laughs> and also the, the group were incredibly forgiving and very uh uh, supportive they, uh, they they appreciated what what it must be like having a suddenly been kind of landed in the uh, in the driving seat when i was a passenger you know, up to that point so uh, but it was very memorable and the retreat ended on the 7th of april which was my 7th bhikkhu birthday so this my exact sort of 7 years as a monk 7th of april was when i became a bhikkhu in 79 so it was it finished on the uh, on my seventh birthday so that was um how my retreat teaching career kind of kicked off but it was a, it was a, a particularly memorable in that sense of how the mind created that idea of performance and the the, the dukkha of that not just anxiety but that sense of division of i've got to please them and my worth or my being comes from that a validation or an approval from that 
thing out there and how uh, alienating and, and um, painful that is. And that when the attitude shifts and it's like, well, here we are, there is this moment and there's the perception of this gathering of, of beings here. And then let's see what arises from that. It was so utterly and completely different, had a whole different uh, tonal quality to it. So that uh, I try to use that and when giving adv advice for people in a position of speaking, giving Dhamma teachings or public speaking, is to, to notice how the mind creates me and them and to say, no, it's just us. <laughs> it's us uh, having the opportunity to enjoy this time together. I'm also aware that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of m being murdered or robbed or, or dying in, an, in, a, uh, in a war or having their whole family uh, murdered. So fear of public speaking is, is more anxiety-producing than even kind of physical destruction. So that... Uh, it's a. Uh, it's not a small thing to 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 be dealing with. So, any questions, thoughts? I've got one out turn. Can you hold the microphone closer? Okay. So when you say you go out of the way as soon as you give a Dhamma talk, but it needs to a certain degree, I think it needs some knowledge or um, a foundation where to take it from. I mean, it's not like channeling, right? So, <laughs> no, so no. I'm here and the words come just flowing through me. So, I mean, it's um, things needs to be processed, been, has to be processed in the heart so you can so where's the source or you need to have a source within yourself or certain yes. kind of knowledge yeah and uh sorry yeah yes so um yeah and in that respect uh what lumpur cha would always say uh, w uh with exactly that that question is so talk about what you know don't talk about what you don't know so you're coming from uh you know you, you come to a monastery you're, you're an anagari car You've been meditating for a number of years. You've been working with your mind on a daily basis for at least a few months, or if not a few years. And so, what have you learned? Even if it's uh, how you dealt with with feeling cold, or how you uh, you learned something of um, uh, had a, an insight feeling hungry, and it was still an hour before the meal time. Talk about that. And that, uh, and so. Uh, that kind of encouragement to come from a place of how you have worked, even on a small scale, and even though you think it's no kind of great spiritual accomplishment, it's not informed by sutta references or, or or great authority. It's just well, I had this hungry feeling, and then I realized, oh, it's it's a it's a feeling, and in itself, it doesn't mean that there's anything missing. It's just in this moment there is this feeling, and I call it hunger, and it feels like this. Oh, look at that. And so very very mundane, very tangible, and but it's something that was in that moment, I'm just making this up, you know, but uh, it can be quite meaningful and helpful to have seen. And it was interesting that when Master Hua um, came to, to, to give talks here and also... Um, 
uh, his uh, his same principle uh, in his monasteries in in the United States. That uh, just like uh, Ajahn Chah, at the at the end of the 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 rains, he would have all of the the sangha members get up and give a dhamma talk. Anyone who's been there spending the rains together, right down to the the, the youngest novices or or anagarikas. Uh, everyone will be invited to give a talk, even if you can only talk for like five minutes or two minutes <laughs> to get up and say something. And it was interesting that Master Shuanhua was exactly the same, that he would get the, the even the very newly ordained people to, or people so on their ordination day, <laughs> get, up, get up and uh, offer, offer some words of Dhamma. And uh, it was, it was uh, one of those things where they used almost exactly the same language to talk about so why do you have these people who are incredibly young in the training? How how can they be in a position to teach? And then uh, both for Lumpur Cha and for Master Hua, and I, and I feel it sort of carries on through the rest of us uh, as a principle, you know, if you had enough faith and wisdom to come through the gate to to, sh to shave your hair off, to put on the robes, you know, ask, asking for the precepts, putting on the robes and making the effort to train yourself day after day, then you've got something to share. Yeah, it may be very limited, it may be not particularly articulate or knowledgeable in terms of, uh, of scriptures, but that faith, that energy, that commitment, and that experience, that's, that shows you've got something to share. And, uh, and so that that, uh, I feel, is a, is a really good principle. You don't have to be an expert to be in the role of teaching. Now, I know there's other, there's other monasteries and other Dhamma teachers who say, you know, you shouldn't ever give any teaching until you're an arahant, which is the other end of the scale. <laughs> but uh, I feel that in a way it's, um, I mean, I'm not deriding that, but it, it's a, um, a different way of working with it is to recognize, yeah, even though I'm very new, I haven't been around very long. I'm not trying to put myself in a position of an expert, but I did have this really helpful insight about having a twisted ankle or about being hungry or about how I really like being praised and I, I really don't like being criticized. Yeah. Uh, and so just sharing that much, then you'll find that if it's coming from, a, from the heart and it's something from your own experience, then there'll be that sense of recognition in the room and, and there'll be people who say, yeah, right, exactly. Well, that's really good to know. And sometimes it's even your teachers, <laughs> your elders who are supposed to be a bit more knowledgeable who say, that's really good, that's useful. Well, yeah, I, I didn't think of it in those words before. And then, uh, so as, as Ajahn Chah would put it, yeah, don't talk about what you don't know. So as soon as you start to feel like, well, I, I ought to, start quoting the, the suttas or I ought to to be speaking about something, then you're kind of representing some intellectual knowledge rather than something that's experiential knowledge. Like you, you, you know about it as an idea, but you haven't actually worked with it or, or, or uh, uh, say, related to that as a, a felt experience or something that you've, you've dealt with, like anger or fear or desire or... Uh, you know, comfort and discomfort. It's uh, as uh, as Lumpucha would say. You know, you can you can read the you can read all about anger in the Abhidhamma, and, and you can explain how many psychological factors there are in the the, the state of anger. But it's not the same as being angry, <laughs> and and how to work with anger as a 
as a, an emotion. It's not the same thing. So that consciously not picking up or not trying to speak about what you don't know, but just saying, uh, saying, speaking from what you do know from your own experience, and then, uh, and then, uh, say, having the attitude of just sharing that. And then, and then, as time goes by, and you get a bit more knowledge from the suttas or the abhidhamma or the vinaya or from other teachers, and that's somebody that you've worked with and you've applied. Then, of course, you can you, you can kind of quote from that or, or use that as a, as a resource. But the main thing is uh, is so as uh, Lumpucha would say, would be like reading the book of your own jitta and then coming from that. Okay, so to continue. Sometimes personalities manifest at the appropriate times. As you talk, you manifest your personality. Maybe in your own mind, you're still caught up in being a person. But this is merely conditions that arise and cease and come out of fear and desire. When there is emptiness, personality still operates. doesn't mean that we're exactly the same like bees in a hive. The, the bees, I'm sure they're all quite, well, I'm not sure, but I suspect that bees are quite different to each other. But Paul's using that example of, doesn't mean we're all exactly the same like bees in a hive. There are still the myriad differences of character and personality that can manifest as charming or whatever. But there is no delusion about them. There's no suffering. For example, when Ajahn Chah first visited England, he was invited to a certain woman's home for a vegetarian meal. She obviously had put a lot of effort into creating the most delicious kinds of food. She was bustling about, offering this food, and looking very enthusiastic. Ajahn Chah was sitting there, assessing the situation. And then suddenly he said, This is the most delicious and wonderful meal that I have ever had. That comment was really something, because in Thailand, monks are not supposed to comment on the food. And yet Lumpur suddenly manifested this charming character complimenting a woman who needed to be complimented because that made her feel happy. He had a feeling for the time and place, for the person he was with, for what would be kind. So he could step out of the designated role of what is supposed to be, according to a tradition, and manifest in ways that were appropriate. That shows wisdom and the ability to respond to a situation, not to be just rigidly bound within a convention that blinds you. That was a manifestation and also a disappearance because I've never heard of his, of his doing that again. So again, that's a, 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 an example that uh, Lumpur Samedi would often talk about because I, I think he was so startled when Lumpur said that. It's like, what? <laughs> And you know, Lumpur Cha had the reputation of being you know, hyper strict and you're very, very uh, scrupulous in these kind of um, vinaya principles. And that uh, as a, a monk, you would you would never make any kind of comment to the to the donor, to, uh, or make, even to, even to uh, to other monastics. But saying that you know to this person's face and in a very complimentary way, then uh, it was really stepping out of uh, of the um, the, the norm, but uh, as he said, you know, attuning to the time, the place, the situation, and just uh, say being ready to to respond in a way that was uh, say what he felt was the um, the the best thing for for that moment, and uh, 
And Lumpur Chah was, he was incredibly adaptable in that way and fearless. Um, uh, on this same time that Lumpur, Lumpur Chah was in London, another example, at maybe the opposite end of the scale, was uh, they were going onto the uh, the London Underground, the Underground Railway in, in, in London, and it was uh, uh, crowds, uh, a time when there was crowds of people bustling through the, the walkways and down the stairs and and any of you who've travelled on, on the, the London Underground, or probably the same as the Metro and, and other uh, underground train s systems in different cities, you know that there's a, a strong kind of momentum in the group. And so, uh, as they were uh, going down the steps and along the along the walkways uh, underground, then Lumpur seemed to be determined to walk extremely slowly, and he would he would kind of stroll along, and he always had his walking stick, and he'd stop and he'd kind of pointed a particular poster and say what's this saying you know what's this about what, what, what are they advertising here and you know what's this is this a show is this a movie what the what's this person doing and and then uh, uh again whether he planned it or not or, or what was going exactly going on but it was a, a very good teaching for Ajahn Sumedho who kept feeling come on Lumpur we got we got to move we've got to keep up we've got to keep up come, come on come on come on come on and that becoming energy of being swept along by the crowd but Lumpur Chah like there's no rush. You know, where, where's the fire? You know, this, we we haven't got to get to, to a, a, a place in a particular time, so let's just walk at our comfortable pace and completely unintimidated by the uh, the urgency of all the people around him. But um, ready to sort of stop and look, and, and or like sitting in a dumb seat, you know, scratching his head and clipping his fingernails and and so on and so forth. Completely unintimidated by the uh, situation around him but ready to sort of respond and, and to 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 work in a way that um that seemed uh, intuitively helpful and appropriate and and so uh, I, i've mentioned many many times i, I didn't spend that uh, that uh, long a period around him probably a, a total of three weeks over the the two years i was in thailand i it was only uh, at a maximum three weeks in his company, not very long at all. But uh, even within that short period of, uh, period of time, you, you could never predict what he was going to do or how he would respond to a situation. When you thought he was going to crack a joke, he'd suddenly be extremely serious. Or when you thought uh, that he was going to give you a really hard time and, and make you, and you're asking for something and he was going to make you really work for it, you just say, okay. <laughs> say yes. Oh, my whole script that I prepared to try and persuade you that I, I need to do this or I want to do that. It's like, I didn't need that at all. And then something that you thought was totally straightforward, he would really you know, make you work for it with, with, uh, uh, with great, <laughs> great rigor. So uh, you, you, uh, they have this expression in English, second guessing. You couldn't second guess him. You never could really predict exactly how he was going to, going to respond. And... And yet he wasn't sort of just trying to be clever or sort of okay how can i how can i think up something new to do or how can i be unpredictable it was all very very much from that place of, of natural uh, attunement to the, the situation the empty mind is an abiding in ease when there's no self no fear or desire to be deluded with sorry the empty mind is an abiding in ease when there is no self, no fear or desire to be deluded with. And yet, 
there is the ability to respond out of compassion and kindness to the present situation in a suitable way. It's strange, isn't it? Compare the goal of Nibbana, of non-existence, with that of becoming the best person in the whole world, the strongest or the most beautiful. Worldly values are about having power, beauty, wealth, but they all have their opposites. Success is always attached to failure. Happiness is always attached to unhappiness. Praise is always attached to blame. Good fortune to bad fortune. So, if you choose the worldly values of wealth, power, success and praise, you're going to get their opposites along with them, because they're like two sides of the same coin. You can't separate the one from the other. Worldly values are never really going to allow you to feel at ease. So when, uh, when uh, Dhamma teachings are, are, are talked about in this way, it can seem quite sort of nihilistic or uh, life-negating, a sort of a, a kind of uh, grumpy attitude um, towards uh, success, happiness, um, good fortune, and so on and so forth. But uh, it's, it's very helpful to consider this is not, a, 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 in a way, a value judgment of putting, putting down uh, happiness, wealth, power, and so on and so forth, but saying, look how nature works. <laughs> see, see how it, it operates. So that, uh, again, just like uh, I was saying with Lumpur Cha, the Buddha's teaching um, itself, the, the, Buddha's, uh, the way the Buddha put things into to words is coming from his experience, his, his observations of, of the natural order, how, how life functions. And so it's not a put down of success and wealth and, and praise, but saying, look what happens. <laughs> when you attach to praise, then, and you invest in that, what happens in the heart when failure is, when, when criticism ex is experienced? How does it feel? When there is a, there's good fortune, when things go well, uh, and there's success, uh, then, and their heart attaches to that, what happens when the success starts to erode? When the, the, the money starts to fade away or that your, your power goes. What happens? How does it feel? What's, what's going on there? And so it's coming from that observation of how these, these uh, qualities work together as pairs, what they call the, the lokiya dhammas, so the, the, the worldly dhammas. So uh, success and fa uh, uh, so happiness and, and unhappiness, uh, success and failure, praise and criticism, uh, fame and disrepute, that they, these are the, the kind of uh, polarities, uh, uh, comfort and discomfort. You know, there's, there's many, many pairs we can, we can make. Uh, it's not just confined to the classical uh, four pairs, but seeing how, how it works. And when, when we invest in, in one, we, we, we give that value. When, then when that fades or that's challenged or the opposite comes around, then we, we are, we're still grasping and we're still invested in, in that, so that, that uh, it's not a, a, a value judgment or a put down of those pleasant aspects of life, you know, like the springtime with the you know, flowers coming up and the, the, the weather warming. So it's like if you attach to spring and beginnings and freshness and greenness and, and, and growth, when there's fading and, uh, and the falling of the leaves and the cooling, and uh, then you're... Uh, uh, you'll be disappointed. There'll be a sense of loss, a sense of, of um, being diminished. So look how that works. 
So I feel it's, it's helpful to see it uh, in that way. And another reflection that I, I like to, to give with respect to particularly success and failure, because the mind can be so easily dominated by wanting success, fearing failure. Uh, and a little exercise, probably most of you have heard me describing, uh, is how when uh, if, if we want to get a perspective on that, we tend to, from a from the position of self-view and, and egotistical thinking, we tend to think of success as an absolute good and failure as an absolute bad. When we are when we get things right, then that's good. It's enjoyable. It's 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 a yes. <laughs> uh, and we get things wrong. We fail. Things break. We, we lose, and it's bad. It's terrible. It's awful. It's the worst. You know? But if we take a uh, 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 look at our own life and look back 5, 10 years, 15 years something that we succeeded at that we were really happy about we, we passed those exams we got married to that person we uh, entered into the monastic life at last, you know I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a nun, I'm a monk I'm an anagarika, yes, finally, great and then 5 years later oh, what was I thinking of oh, I can't believe I was celebrating I can't, uh, that when I got that promotion, I was so happy. I oh, had no idea what was coming from that. So, yes, that success was sweet, but when we look and see, well, okay, what, uh, is, what was, the, what was the, the, the events or the things that came after? And to see that, yes, that was a, a pleasant moment or that it was, it was compelling and, and delightful at that time, but see what came from it. And then similarly, if we look back 5, 10 years, 15 years, as something that was, uh, we call a disaster, you know, some kind of illness, or you're fired from a job, or a relationship breaks up, or we, uh, uh, we cause a, you know, a terrible uh, problem in, a, in our work, or in the family, and or for ourselves, and, uh, and it's a real disaster, it's a, you know, the worst thing. And then we look at it now from 5, 10, 15 years later, and we can see, well, actually, that was a terrible at the time i really didn't want that to happen but you know this and that and the other really good qualities came forth from that so it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me and for most people it doesn't take a lot of research <laughs> to look back into our lives and see see how those things take shape in that way so what does that say about success and failure that uh, the the one contains the other and that uh, if we expand the view we realize that um in the words of, uh, of Rudyard Kipling, who I know is not a very popular colonial presence in the in the world nowadays, but uh, in this particular poem of, of his, is that which is called "If," he said, "If we if we can uh, if we can see success and failure and know those two imposters to uh, treat those two imposters just the same, an imposter is someone who's pretending to be something else. So, if we can see success and failure." And treat those two imposters just the same, so that they can never be absolute. They're just a, a, an impression, a way of labeling a particular experience. Because one person's success is somebody else's failure, <laughs> and uh, then that gives us a, a perspective uh, on that, and that uh, the we can recognize, yeah, this has got a sweet taste, this has got a bitter taste, and then uh, we're not investing it. The heart doesn't buy into those states in the same way. Then just to finish, the world is an unsafe place. It's not peaceful, and it's not where we really belong. You only begin to understand and realize peace through emptiness, non-existence, 
not so. And this is not annihilation, but enlightenment, freedom, true peace, true knowledge. So I'll leave it there for today.